0: well good morning everyone how's everybody doing today hey um man just a couple of things I uh, wanted to let you know about we got well first of all we have baby dedications which we'll get to in just a second um but really quickly just wanted to let you know if you're newer to door of hope uh, and you're still trying to figure out who we are and what we're all about um just want to let you know that we are doing uh discovered door of hope today um, after church, and uh, Discover Door of Hope uh, happens at 12 p.m., and it's in the fourth and fifth grade room, which is the room to my left at the very bottom of the stairs. Uh, and this is an opportunity for you to kind of hear about who we are as a church, what our, our values are. We, we are built on four pillars, which is the cross, community, uh, simplicity, uh, and a commitment to the city. And And what we want to kind of help you understand is, how each of those pillars inform what we do and, and gives you a little bit uh, of an opportunity to meet some of the leadership as well as to ask questions. Uh, and, you know, I always say that when someone's trying to decide, church shopping is a very stressful thing. Uh, and some people, you know, uh, have the ability to shop for a long time and, and never find a product they're, they're totally happy with. And, you know, such as the, the reality that God has chosen to use fallen, broken, sinful people to continue to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so, uh, so if you're looking for a perfect church, uh, this might just be another church on the list of shopping. Uh, but, but my prayer is is that you recognize that God is moving in many churches and if this is the right fit for you. Um, then we are so excited for you to have the opportunity to get to know us better. And so, so I think it's right that we actually ask good questions when we <laughs> engage in a church, especially in a city like Portland, because you never know what you're getting into. It's kind of like uh, Christian bookstores should always have over the head or, you know, enter at your own risk, which I'm kind of glad that they, they really don't exist anymore. Um, now you have to have that same motto written over Amazon. Uh, so <laughs> I just was looking at the spirituality top sellers, you know, the Christian spirituality top sellers. And I'm like, I swear like 10 of the books like weren't Christian books at all. And I'm like, I don't understand how this list works, but this is the age that we live in. Uh, okay. Uh, the other uh, announcement I just want to make that, um, you know, before Christmas, we made a pretty, pretty intense statement around just the state of, of the finances at Door of Hope and uh, in the fact that, you know, after COVID, 2021, we began to be hit really hard where we were beginning to dig into reserves on a regular basis to, to meet our uh, to meet what was needed to do the ministry uh, and, and that's a pretty scary thing and in Door of Hopes we're almost 14 years old and in, in 14 years we've never had to lay off anyone uh, we've never ha- we've never come up e- even when we had really nothing um, and what's funny is that it didn't matter in, in the history of the church it hasn't mattered if we were 1800 people uh, or 600 people attending on a Sunday, the amount of people that actually give to support the church has always been about the same, which has been about 200 to 250 people. When I shared that last month and said, hey, we're, this is serious. Like if we don't actually see shifts and and a change in the tide, like we're going to actually have to start thinking about laying off pastors and we have a very small staff as it is and the church is continuing to, continuing to grow and I just want to thank you guys because you've responded really faithfully um, and we saw a massive uptick and like from November to December in January which last year was a brutal month or, uh, for us was like our our monthly expenses you I mean you can imagine what it costs to keep a building like this to handle the mortgage—the a, a hundred and something year old stone building. That the moment the heat goes off, you're in a refrigerator. Uh, the, the you can imagine what it costs to keep a place like this going, uh, and and our monthly expenses are like around ninety-nine thousand dollars. So when we're bringing in an average of eighty. 4,000 a month, you can see how that's kind of a problem. (laughs) So last month in January, which is usually a very low month for us, we brought in 102,000. And so that means we're making the budget, barely, but we're making it. (laughs) Um, But we needed to continue and what we as elders agreed is that that needs to continue. We need to see that trend for at least three months. Um, like that needs to be a continued trend. It can't be just a one time thing. So I just want to remind you I'm not, we're not a church. If you're new to Dorf Hope, just know that it, the reason we're, partially the reason we're in the situation we're in is because we never talk about money. And that probably comes to my own aversion of, of the desire to reach lost people in the city. And that's not the message I wanted them to hear the first time they come to church. Um, but the, Fact is, is that as, as a community that is desiring to go deeper and to become more mature and like Jesus, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have belongs to Him. And the money isn't making anybody rich, okay? Uh, we have underpaid pastoral staff. We, we want to be doing more for the kingdom. We want to be doing more for the community. Um, and we want to see more people come to know Jesus on a personal level. And so this is just your way and we want to continue to provide you with your $10,000 a year coffee that to me tastes like tea. Because I actually am a contrarian and I, 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 I reject Portland's coffee snobbery and which is why I proudly drink at times monster drinks or even uh, even Starbucks, um, which is much the chagrin of my fellow Portlanders. And if you can't listen to me because of that, then that's a deep, deep, deep problem that you have. Not me. Don't put that on me. That's your problem. Um, so. Uh, so, with that said, thank you guys so much. But let's just remember this is just be a part of who we are. Darcy and I give to the church that I actually pastor. This is, this is a, what we're called to do as a people. We take care of one another, we're a community. Um, and don't rely on a few people to provide you with your church experience. Uh, this isn't meant to be an experience, you come and just watch, it's, a, it's meant to be a community, a family that you're actually engaged in and participating with and, and, and committed to. And I'm speaking specifically to those of you that call Door of Hope your home. So with that said, I wanna invite up um, Matthew and, is it, is it Lilia, is that right, is that right? Um, and their little one, Ruby, and then Caesar um, and Hannah, and their little one, Eva. Awesome. Uh, look, at, look at look at the matching little dresses. And Dad's even wearing brown, too. That is so Portland of you. It's amazing. Um, uh, here at Door of Hope, we, we don't do infant baptism. We believe that baptism is for the believer. Um, and we think that that needs to be an, an understood decision uh, as a sacrament. We believe the sacraments are actually just uh, witnesses or symbols that point us to the true sacrament, which is Jesus himself. Um, We believe deeply in the uh, responsibility of the community to come around families and that it is right for us to dedicate our little ones to the Lord um, and to do it in the context of the family um, because we as a church have a responsibility to cover our families and our kids in prayer. And never has there been a time uh, in American history, at least, where our kids need prayer uh, uh, and covering to navigate the insanity of the world in which we live. Um, and so um, one of the things we wanted to, to start doing is we want to basically bring more people up at once uh, to do baby day questions and then just ask the parents if there's a, if there's, um, a specific verse or anything that, that you wanna, want us to pray over for your kids. Yeah. Am I throwing you on the spot right there? I'm assuming that's what was communicated, okay, good. <laughs> uh, so the verse I chose was Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Oh, that's a good one, good choice, Thank you You like that girls, yeah, yeah good, okay. <laughs> Hello, uh, I did pick one, we did pick one uh, and I know that he's talking about Israel here but it's Zechariah 2.5. For I declare, the Lord will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. That um, that really spoke to us. Um, Given the fact that, you know, when you go through life, there's always going to be trouble. Um, But he's always there. So I really cling on to that. So I hope the same for her. Yeah. Did it, did it say a wall of fire around her? Absolutely. That's a real fatherly yeah. thing to pray for her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A real wall. I, I, I should have prayed that one earlier. <laughs> just, I want my daughter to just be surrounded by fire at all times. <laughs> <Who doesn't? laughs> Don't touch. You'll get, you'll get burned, boys. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> all right. Ah, great. Great passages, guys. And, um, so, Ruby and Eva. What, what beautiful names. All right. Hey, you guys, if you would extend a hand out toward these families. And let's pray over these girls and over over parents. And, and let's just pray God's blessing on them. Lord, we just thank you so much uh, for the children. Uh, you said, Jesus, let the little children come to me. Uh, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I just pray uh, that your Holy Spirit um, would be over these families over these girls that there would be a covering. I do pray that the fire of your spirit and the fire of your love would be around them. I do pray that that proverbial wisdom of just guidance and covering um, and insight into how to navigate uh, the days ahead and I don't just pray that for the kids but I pray that specifically for the parents um, that they would just have uh, the ability to, uh, to point their children to you by modeling grace that beautiful reality of love without contingency that nothing can ever separate you from my love because I am modeling the very love that I have experienced and tasted from Jesus Himself and so Lord we thank you for these families and we thank you for these girls and we pray be with them cover them may they grow to know you and love you and follow you all the days of their life we pray this in your name and all of God's people said Amen. Amen Thanks, guys. Thanks, girls. Do you guys want to stay up here with me? Uh, you, do, you do? That's good. Uh, She's a good helper. You must be called to ministry. <laughs> hey, thank you. God bless you guys. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> All right. I love kids. You know, every time I do, a, um, I keep getting excited to be a grand, grandpa, and Darcy and I already picked our grandparent names, and we don't, our kids aren't even married yet. Um, so, mine's going to be, um, and if, I just want to present it to you in case, you know, I'd like to practice. So, if you want to have your kids call me this, it would be helpful. Um, but I'm going to go by Captain, and I want the kids to call me Cappy. And then Darcy's going to go by Kitty, it's Captain and Kitty. I think those are both really solid grandparent names. Don't steal that. I hate it when people steal my stuff. All right. <laughs> A woman once came up to Darcy at a church we were working at, and she's like, she goes, I hope you don't mind, but I really loved the name that you gave your daughter, and we're going to take it. And She was like, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And I'm like, man, we are territorial, aren't we, honey? (laughs) By the way, I've been fighting my daughter. She's claiming that she wants the name Captain for her kid, and I'm like, you can't call your kid Captain if that's her grandfather's name. well, we're going to be jumping um, back into the Sermon on the Mount today, and what we're going to be looking at um, here in Matthew chapter 6 is we're going to begin uh, the first part of what is called the Lord's Prayer, or I would call the family prayer. And Ian did an, a wonderful job of setting up um, Jesus' warning, and as, and as I, I looked at as we call this the kingdom of grace, this series, because it's all about interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, which is often a misunderstood and misapplied teaching of Jesus that, that can lead very quickly to legalism and exhaustion and ladder climbing rather than to the cross of Christ, which is a continual reminder that all that needs to be done has been done in and through Christ and our responsibility is to receive that reality the power the grace of God which is the only means by which we can actually enter in then to following in his steps entering into his life we are allowing God to work in and through us that's why we say that faith in Jesus is our disposition toward him that allows him the right to be himself in and through us chapter 6 of Matthew is is a chapter that focuses in on what I would call practicing righteousness, which is a bit of an oxymoron. Because we are told that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves, but our righteousness comes to us um, as as an imparted gift due to our faith in Jesus. But what we need to recognize is that faith in Christ is not just believing that he's there, but faith in Christ is the transformation of of the human, the human life into an actual living conduit of God's very presence. And if we really want to see revival in our city, if we really want to see personal revival in our church, we have to come to an understanding of how obedience fits into the whole package. That yes, God's love is elective. He chooses to love sinners in their sin. But God is also a holy God and that means He's not content to leave us there. And thank goodness for that. He calls us to, to f- pick up our cross and to follow hard after him. And so what we were looking for then as disciples of Jesus, which are people who have left all and have oriented their lives around Jesus as their center, that means that we have to learn what it means to follow him. It means that we need a faith that works. We don't work for faith. We have a faith that works. That, that there, is, there is the outworking of of the very gift that comes to us freely. Uh, That's why I like how um, D.L. Moody said, salvation is like a gold mine, we must learn to dig it out. The grace um, is a gift, and if you think about the definition of gifts, gift is on one side is something that we receive freely, um, and it's possible to be given a gift and refuse to open it. (laughs) Um, It doesn't change the fact that the giver gave it, It uh, it doesn't change the heart behind the gift, there is, a, there is a reality that much of Christianity is receptivity. Are we willing to receive, uh, or are we willing to say yes to the yes that God has declared over us in Jesus? But gift isn't just something that's given freely and open freely. There's also another definition of gift. Gift is actually a talent that one is born with. So if you are a gifted uh, artist, a painter. I mean, I mean, really gifted, like uh, you're like a man, like a Picasso or that kind of like, like immortal type of gift, Michelangelo. Uh, It's true that there was a natural disposition that the average artist did not possess, that they possessed that made them greats. But they still had to exercise that gift, practice that gift, work it out until they became efficient enough to unleash that which was already within them. I think the same goes for great athletes, world-class athletes. It doesn't matter if I train every day uh, to run a marathon. I will never be fast because God has cursed me with extremely short legs and and also an incredible distaste for running. So it doesn't matter how often I do it. Um, I, it, it I'm never gonna compete with a, some sort of marathon runner that can run, you know, a mar- whatever they do it in, like two hours or something. Uh, like that's not, never gonna happen because I don't have the internal disposition. I don't have the DNA. Um, but did any of those runners just get up one day and run, run in the Olympics without ever training for it? No. And they were discovered because of their absolute diligence in working out the gift that was in them. I think that this is a, a very a very helpful way of understanding the uniqueness of our position as Christians that on one, in, in one way, we have been met by a God who has come down into our darkness that no matter how deep of a hole we can dig ourselves jesus 's love goes deeper still that the gospel is good news because it 's down to earth but On the other hand, when Jesus picks us up, when he brings us from death to life and we become new creation, that new creation, we need to learn how to exercise the reality of what God declares that we are. It's like the children of Israel. They were freed by God. They were his chosen people. He brings them out of slavery, but they could not figure out how to be... How to be what God had declared they had already become. And so they continually looked back to the old life. And because of that, an entire generation of God's chosen people perished in the wilderness. Because they could not accept the fact that God had given them everything that was necessary to take the promised land. And I think that the vast majority of Christians live in this same kind of defeat. Just enough faith to get out of hell... (laughs) But not enough faith to enjoy heaven on the way to heaven. Just enough faith to get out, get out of the, the life that you had before, but now wandering in kind of the purgatory of wilderness because you don't understand that the victory is not something you work toward, but it's something you work from. So as we look to prayer, I, I want us to a be I want to be really clear. I think prayer has historically The most abused (laughs) type of teaching that comes from the pulpit. I have rarely heard a sermon on prayer that isn't hell-bent on making people feel guilty about how little they pray. I even remember reading a famous revivalist preacher, Leonard Ravenhill. He says, a pastor that does not pray for two hours a day on his knees is not worth a dime a a dozen. And I'm like, it's a bit subjective, Mr. Ravenhill. Um, I, show me the passage in scripture that actually supports such a, and why are, you, why are you being so mean? I think maybe you've got a secret here that that's not something you do and you feel bad about it and you're projecting it onto me. Um, uh, no, prayer is, 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 yes, it is a privilege, but it is also a responsibility. But if it's not motivated by grace, uh, it will become something that, that continues to elude us. And I think that, that when we sit around and feel guilty by, you know, I, I, this, I can't even tell you how many sermons I've heard where, where people will say, when we get to heaven and stand before God, we will never be told that we prayed too much. I'm like, okay, well, like, how is that helpful for me right now? What I want to know is, can I trust this God that I'm called to commune with? Help me understand, help me me be inspired to pray. Don't make me feel bad so that I do something that I don't want to do. It's like forcing someone into a conversation with another person that they don't want to talk with. I mean, you can do it, but it's not very comfortable. It becomes very awkward, doesn't it? So I want to just begin by saying this jesus has already established and ian touched on this if you weren't here last week i would encourage you to listen to it that he says and when you pray and again and again he says this he says and when you practice your righteousness and when you pray and when you fast which by the way i really like just dropping like a bomb on you guys the call to fast for seven days water only without any preparation it was super funny Um, and, uh, and, and I was incredibly encouraged by how many people just, just jumped into it because I'm right. If I give you too much time to think about not eating for seven days, there's a lot of good reasons why you shouldn't do that. Right. Um, and man, uh, thank you for everyone that came and prayed every day with us and, and entered into that, man, the greatest lesson I learned through that whole thing. And we'll talk about this more next week is that I found Jesus Putting on my heart every day, do you ever hunger for me the way that you hunger for food right now? And that was a profound question. It was also a profound reminder that you can say no to the flesh, at least for a period of time. It's also what I found on a very practical level um, a guarantee it, that is the key to weight loss, not eating. And I, I didn't know that, and I discovered that. Um, and that became problematic because then i felt a little vain by the end of the week and i thought i don't think i'm ever going to eat again (laughs) which then takes right away the reward that comes to you from your father in heaven because now i'm talking about the fasting i'm not supposed to be talking about but i felt good i felt good at the end of the week on many levels and mainly i felt good because i felt the community of god seeking the face of god together and it was a beautiful thing um And I think that this is the thing, again and again, when you do these things, which Jesus is what? (laughs) He's assuming that that's what his disciples will be doing. Which means that they should be actually taken pretty seriously. And fasting, as Ian gets to teach on it, is not one of those things that we often take very seriously. Uh, We're like, well that one's, you know, I don't have to do any of these things to be saved. True, we're not talking about salvation, we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about what it means to be a disciple what it means to participate in the very life of Christ. Um, and if Christ says that these things are important, um, then we can trust that they're important, that, that they actually are going to, to, to bring greater value and meaning to our existence. They're gonna be helpful. Um, and it's not surprising that many of these practices have been proven to be not just helpful on a spiritual plane, but they actually have been proven to help with mental health and physical health and it is a fact Um, it's funny that science there's all this stuff right now from science on fasting like the health benefits of fasting like as if that's some sort of new discovery by modern western thinkers like no the well, duh, that, that's been practiced by every world religion for thousands of years, that there's benefits to this. Um, and we can trust that what the Lord expects us to do is because he loves us, and it's going to bring us into a deeper relationship with him when it flows out of a right understanding of the gospel of grace. So he says, when you pray, you remember, don't be like the hypocrites, Vagans who think they, they're heard for their many words. So don't don't go on rambling. You ever pray with people that just pray for so long? It's like you wanna stop them and read that verse to them. Like, hey, like, man, you've been going forever, like this is not a running monologue. And listen, as one who has the gift of monologue, I understand the problem of that behavior. Um, and, and, but he's like that's not God already knows what you need before you even ask him. So we move into this passage and I think that this is this is so beautiful. He says, and he talks about the the, the prayer closet and, and these 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 different aspects of prayer. But but I want you to keep in mind um, that that the way that he addresses how we pray, uh, there is an assumption that it's not it's not necessarily you alone with God, um, but it's you. Uh, in the context of community with God and you praying on behalf of the community, uh, which is always a a motivation of Jesus, is to help us put to death the hyper-individualism and self-sufficiency that runs rampant in fallen human hearts. Um, So let me just read the prayer, and then we're just going to break down the first part today. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer was called by Calvin the Lord's Apprenticeship to True Prayer. And I think that's a really a beautiful statement that this essentially carries within it the essence of what true prayer is. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer. Luther prayed it every day the churches historically gathered together and prayed these words together. But I actually don't think that's the primary purpose of Jesus here when he says, and when you pray, pray like this as if we're just to pray those exact words because our God is a relational God. And you remember what I said um, a few months ago and I've continued to say to you because I think it's important that the goal of the Christian life is not arriving but knowing. The most central concern of the human heart is this, Do you know the one who created you? And if God is a relational being who has made us in in His image and what that means to be made in His image is that we are made for relationship not only with Him, but with others like us. Then the question is, 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 are we entering into an ever deepening understanding of who He is? And not intellectually or abstractly, but through personal interaction. That we are meeting with a God who is present. That we are meeting with a God who hears. And who is perpetually speaking into his creation. This is of utmost importance because prayer is not meant to be some sort of abstract human exercise. By which we, and I understand the importance of, uh, of a, as a guy who struggles with anxiety. And who has a mind that never knows how to turn off um, and doesn't know how to rest and can often feel overwhelmed when I pray because of how quickly I am distracted. I understand all of those things, but the more I understand that prayer is meant to be relational, I, just because I have those issues doesn't mean I'm not able to be in relationship with people. I've been married for, for a long time. My wife can tell me at times, honey, you're talking at me, you're not talking with me. And, but it takes relationship for her to be able to say that to me and God is gentle and He's corrective and He will help us and He understands that we do not know how to pray as we ought and this is why I think it is so important for us to remember that God is not a God who is just sitting up there disappointed and mad at you because of your lack of communication with Him or your lack of communion with Him it breaks His heart only because He loves you and he is a good father who is just waiting for his kids to look up and recognize he's there and he's not looking for eloquence. When I traveled to Europe with my son I remember thinking this is going to be the time when Henry and I have an opportunity, he's a, he's a young man now, we're gonna talk the whole flight, it's gonna be epic, and we can take a 10 hour flight to London, straight from Portland. I mean like the amount of conversation and depth that's gonna come into that relationship due to this time together, this focus time, we can't go anywhere, we're in a metal canister over the, over the ocean, This is gonna, it's forced union. We land in London, we both take our headphones off, um, And, you know, I I think I watched, like, Braveheart, and I even maybe watched, like, Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler. It's funny how even in airplanes, like, the worst movies are incredible. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, And then I said, Henry, I'm so glad you're here with me. And he's like, I'm so glad to be with you, too, Dad. We both put our headphones back on. Do you think I was mad at him that that's the only interaction we had on the long flight? No, I was just stoked he's there with me. I was so stoked that he was just happy to be with me. And yes, I want meaningful conversation. And, and yes, there can always be more depth. But I love my son. And for me, it was just a joy to have my kid with me and to recognize my presence with him and to be able to, to be with him. And I think that the intimacy is there's times even with God that we need to learn. It's okay if you don't have anything to say, maybe you should just sit still before him. It's okay. He loves you. He's not disappointed. Sometimes the only thing you can say is 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 a, a guttural cry because you're hurting so bad. And that's okay. Because he, he weeps with you. And sometimes all you can do is laugh because you're filled with joy and you don't know what to say. And and that's okay because he created you to feel all of these feelings and he feels them with you. And God is is incredibly patient. Incredibly patient. So Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, he is is guiding us into how personal our God is. That this is about relationship. It's not about arriving, it's about knowing. Because that is the most important thing that any of us can answer. Do I know the God who loves me with an everlasting love? Because the most terrifying words we can ever say is found actually in Matthew 7. Away from me, I never knew you. And that was to people that were doing all kinds of things for him. That's why I posed a few weeks ago, do you serve because to be loved or do you serve because you are loved? The same question goes for prayer. Well, the opening line, this, this then is how you should pray, begins with this instruction. And, and by him just simply saying, this then is how you should pray, uh, is, is, speaks to three realities. It is privilege, it is responsibility, and it also is assuming some ignorance, okay? Look at what it says in Romans 8, 26-27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I don't believe this is a passage speaking to, the, to what some call the what some define as the gift of tongues um, tongues is written about extensively in first corinthians but here i think it speaks to the reality of the spirit uttering things or ex- essentially what it's saying is that we have an interpreter of our broken prayers like we speak s- like in a fallen broken sin language a little bit like gibberish and what i like to say is it's like a little and i when i was teaching through romans i shared that the way that i view this is like the this the spirit is like a parent of a, of, their, of a toddler. You know when you're around a toddler that's not your toddler and they speak to you and you're like, I don't have any idea. That sounded like absolute nonsense. And then even the siblings of that toddler can tell you exactly what the toddler said. I think that that's what the, the so this is how it works. You're, you're like, Lord, I need a new Tesla. And the spirit says, Lord, give him a bicycle. <laughs> He just interprets what we need, is my point. He's <laughs> like, "Or Lord, I need, I need right now, I need something." It's funny how we as kids, like, look at how little kids are. They come to you and they ask you. What a terrible parent you would be if you gave your kid everything they ever asked. And didn't Jesus say, "You being evil know how to give a good gift to your children"? If your child asks for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give them a stone. Uh, you, you know, but you know. A good parent also isn't going to give him, like, a, a two-year-old, a, you know, a roast beef sandwich because he'd probably choke on it. Or a one-year-old. Like, we, we know there's, there's thoughtfulness. We give our kids what they, what they need if we're good parents, which at times means not giving them what they're asking for because they don't understand what they're asking for. We are the same with God. And we don't seem to outgrow that sort of childish behavior. Our prayers are are fundamentally broken because we are broken people with broken bodies and broken minds easily distracted and we live in a fallen world that we are cons- consistently bombarded with a multitude of voices and, it, and it's overwhelming and we are, we are continually fed artificial needs um, we are continually fed the idea that we need certain things to actually be happy. And, and often our prayer life can be populated with what we assume are real needs, but they're actually artificial needs. And that's why I always say God always answers prayers. We just don't like that the answer is often no, because he cares actually about our whole well-being. And sometimes it sits outside of the mystery. We don't know. We can pray for God to heal someone, and he may not heal them, or he may heal them, but it's not because he's indifferent and he loves the same. It's just that we don't know the beginning from the end or the redemptive purposes that are wrapped up in the dissonant notes of our existence. And so here, when he teaches, tells us to, he said, this is, then is how you should pray, is Jesus is going to open up for us some ways that we can actually begin to know how it is that we should engage with God. And, and, the, and, and I think that this is something that we need to understand as first and foremost as Privilege. The God of love is also a commanding God. And this is how I would say that. Prayer is required of us because we have been given the power, the spirit, to perform it. It's required of us because we have been given the power to perform it. We must pray because God wills it, but it's also because we need it. Which means we are not free to pray or to not pray or to pray only when we feel like it. For prayer is not an act that comes naturally to us, as Karl Barth declared. He says it's an act of grace. It's our response to grace. So it is, it is a privilege that God has, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke and the universe left into existence, has moved into our frail what seems like seemingly insignificant um, existences but here's the thing in God's eyes your existence is extremely significant because he's your creator even though the world in all of its hostility may make you feel like you don't matter you matter immensely and God is not just content to save you he is inviting you into relationship with him and he gives you his own saving life as the means by which it can happen. So that privilege is a gift, but it's a responsibility. And, and it is wrapped, unfortunately, in, often in ignorance. We don't know how we ought to pray as we ought. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. God's will is that we pray and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf because that's God's will. God wills us to pray and God wills that we recognize He has given given us Himself to pray to Him with. In other words, we pray to God through the lips of Jesus, our Savior. And this is why Jesus says we must abide in Him. It's a powerful and mysterious thing and I don't understand the mechanics of it and that is not important and nobody does. There is a mystery involved but our, pra- our broken, broken prayers are interpreted by our very perfect God and, and we can trust that He hears us in all of our ignorance um, and I would rather you be ignorantly praying than, than, uh, than purposefully not praying because you don't think you know how to pray. Everybody prays, by the way. Everybody prays. People spin their wheels praying to an unknown God. We have been given the privilege of knowing the God who has revealed Himself to us through Jesus and God is not greater than He has revealed Himself to be in the person of Jesus. And when I look to the face of Jesus, I can't help but trust that God is good. God has spoken at various times in various ways, but he has spoken to us in these last days through his son. And Jesus says, I will be with you always till the end of the age. Don't worry about what you'll say. The spirit will give you the words. And sometimes when we don't have the words, we just, maybe it's because God is actually teaching us in that moment that we've been trusting too much in our performance for him, that he frustrates that performance to remind us once again, it's not about us, that it's about him. And that our strength doesn't come from our flesh, it comes from Him. Isn't that why Paul said, you foolish Galatians, why are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the Spirit? Well, let's begin the address. The address is three things. First of all, it is personal, it is familial, and it's holy. Um, The Lord's Prayer is, first of all, personal. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth is in heaven we are addressing someone i was actually in a big debate with my book club um, because uh, we in the past read we read a lot of philosophy and literature together uh, and um and as a pastor i get super annoyed by many of the academic theologians of the 20th century that birthed what we would call liberal theology because one of the key marks I think of liberal theology is the depersonalization of God. And the key guy that actually depersonalized God probably more than any other and and his primary goal even as a theologian was to do what he called uh, remove the intellectual embarrassment from the Christian faith. What the heck is that? Um, I'm embarrassed by that statement because it says in Scripture that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because it says that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. Uh, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. So I, don't, I, think, I kind of feel like it's, a, it's sort of a bum, bummer that he spent his entire intellectual prowess on trying to do something that God says can't be done. Uh, but his name was Paul Tillich and he was one of the two theologians that were on the cover of Time magazine. Um, with the guy that I really like, which is Carl Barth. And believe me, they all have their problems. Um, So if you're like, I know about Barth, isn't he a universalist? First of all, if you say that, I would almost guarantee you haven't read him. Uh, And secondly, I don't know if he was, but there's so much good in what he said that he should not be ignored. And he was the opposite of Tillich. He believed in the personal revelation of God and that God cannot be known unless God reveals himself. And he anchored everything in Scripture. Where I was reading Tillich's systematic theology and he uses no scripture. None. It's all philosophical speculation. And one of the first things he says is that God is not a person. And he's being technical. It's true that the church fathers used the language of one God, three persons, but he means more than saying he's not personal. It sort of leads God to this God is in everything kind of pantheistic worldview. And some would say, well, you misunderstand Tillich. Well, whatever. He's so ambiguous, you know, that's on him. He should be more clear. Uh, and so, I, I, and I get frustrated because I think many people, uh, you know, they, let say the AA, AA is an example. One of the key goals of AA historically is to lead you to the higher power. The higher power is meant to lead you to a personal God because the creator of AA was actually a Christian. Um. I think that that focus has been diminished and higher power now can mean power within yourself. All these things, there's there's a whole variety. Most people in Portland are spiritual. We're the city of coexist, okay? And that city of coexist means that there's a belief that there's something out there, but the idea that that thing is personal, um, it actually gets replaced with the idea that the only thing that's truly God is the God within me and I just need to learn how to untap that. I'm not interested in having empty conversations with myself. Um, because I haven't found anything worthy of worship in me. Uh, And so we need to understand that the Bible reveals a God who is in himself the essence of relationship. And when I say personal, I do not mean private. Let me ask you guys a question. There's a quote, famous quote by Augustine, attributed to Augustine. I don't think he said it. Uh, I found no, no proof that he said it. I found a couple of statements that were similar to it, but it says, the one who has God has everything. The one who has everything without God has nothing. Is that a true statement? Anyone? Anyone? Is it a true statement? The one who has God has everything. The one who has everything without God has nothing. True or false? No. No, it's not. It's actually false. Uh, It's only true in the second half, actually. I did this to 100 pastors this week in Klamath Falls, and it was so satisfying. Um, uh, <laughs> it's not true, because what does God say over Adam in an unfallen state? Adam has God all to himself. It's just him and God. And God says this over Adam. It is not good that man what, be alone. You see, one of the great problems of modern Christianity is we have turned it into an individualistic pursuit. And it has never been that. And that is why I actually get frustrated at an over-adherence to the, the supreme quote of the Westminster Catechism, which I like that catechism, but nobody knows any of the rest of the catechism except for this one line, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm like, well, tell me another part. Oh, I don't know, that's, that's it. It's just about glorifying God and enjoying Him. Yeah, you and God. Well, I'm pretty sure, why do we need that anyway? Because Jesus told us what the most important thing was. And I don't need the catechism to tell me that. The most important thing is love God in what? Love your neighbor. And I would argue that you don't get to love God without your neighbor. And this is why Jesus tells us to pray like this. My Father who is in heaven. Did He say that? No, He did not. He said our father and here's the thing there is always a responsibility within within the reality of prayer when we pray we are also praying on behalf of those that can't pray for themselves and when we pray there is a unifying reality that is meant to bring god's people together i love carl bart said whenever i pray i always gather with others you guys we pray every week um mel and Jean, i just want to honor them you know for years and years and years, I, I tended to lead all the early 21 days of morning prayer. And a year and a half, they came to me after, um, after the morning prayer ended. We did 21 days straight. And they said, we want to keep this going. And at first, I'm like, hey, that's kind of my thing. And I'm like, no, the purpose of pastoral staff is to equip the saints to do the work of a ministry. And they, they, they want to own this. And they want to do it every other month. I don't want to do it every other month. But they do it every other month. Pray here every single day. Every other month. And every Wednesday um, morning at 6 a.m. And every Saturday at 7 a.m., there's people praying. And their women get together to pray. What time do the women pray on, on, on Tuesday? Is it Monday or Tuesday? Monday. And what time? 9.30? Yes, 9.30. Women pray. We bu- Is it 9? Nine? 9 o'clock. Okay, sorry. 9. Um, in the morning, on Mondays, <laughs> uh, This church is a praying church and there's something happening in the prayer movement of this church and we aren't professional prayers, okay? We're just people that believe that God actually actually has given us the freedom to pray and His freedom does not crush our freedom nor does our freedom threaten His sovereign working in in, in human history. He has ordained this to be this way. He wants us to engage ourselves with Him on a personal level and He wants us to do it communally because our lives are not about just us and God. That's why that statement attributed to Augustine is not true and it's why actually I would say Augustine actually never said it. Um, It's just pithy and it speaks very much to our individualistic society. God says over Adam before sin has even entered the picture, it is not good that man be alone, why? Because Adam is not a triune person in himself. And you can say, well, we're mind, body and spirit. That's not the same thing, don't do that. God is complete in himself because he's a community within himself. And we need to be in community with him by having others like ourselves. This is why it is man and woman together that form the image of God, not man by himself. And so it is that we are not to address God in an impersonal way nor in a private way. It's personal, it's familial, it's family, but it's also this. It is holy. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name is the profound statement that recognizes that first and foremost, in order to put us in a right posture before the God who knows us and is inviting us to know him, is that we recognize his presence, but we also recognize our relationship to him. To say, hallowed be your name, is to basically put ourselves into a posture of worship and worship is defined by surrender, submission to His holiness and His holiness is not His, His holy otherness or His apartness. That is a part of His character but God's holiness is now defined by His actual entrance into this world and the humiliation of His Son on the cross because Jesus has given us absolute access to God. He has commandeered the very weapon of the enemy death and turned it into a vehicle by which we come into life and so when we come to the father through Jesus we are coming into contact with God's holiness defined by his self-giving love his holy name we're addressing a God who has the power to actually do things in our life do things that matter to move in a way that actually can change the way that we live this is why prayer is so significant we are robbing ourselves of joy remember what lewis said in that first message that god does not find our desires too strong he finds them too weak because we're too busy making mud pies in the slum to imagine what it's like to have a vacation at the sea there is that, that's one of the things God asked. have you hungered for me the way that you hunger for food right now? Hallowed be your name is putting me in a posture that recognizes the very key thing that Jesus is going to continue to hammer on throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the Kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things shall be added to you. God already knows what we need before we ask. What we need supremely is Him. What we need more of is Him. And what we need more of is a right posture before the one who created us for himself. And that actually is where our joy is going to be found. So finally, I want to just deal with this the request, and it deals with surrender, power, and participation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There, is, there, are, there are multiple realities here. The, the, the request is, first of all, as I just stated, surrender. I am surrendering my kingdom. It's not the American kingdom. It's not my personal kingdom. It's not any other human kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And his kingdom is under his authority. And it's defined by his ethics. And therefore, we are subjects to the king. And the king, though he is a dictator, and some people don't like that I use that term because we think in terms of dictator as always a negative term. Well, it is always negative when there's a human that's a dictator. But God, um, and as we see in Jesus, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is technically a dictator. He is the ultimate authoritarian. He is the ultimate ruler. We are told in Scripture there will be a day when every knee shall bow to Jesus as Lord. But his lordship means that our kingdom goes so that his kingdom can come. It means that not my will be done anymore, which is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is driven by I will be my own God. The essence of salvation is I now am reunited with the God who actually is king. When we choose to be our own gods, we are actually choosing to live out the life of a shadow. It's an illusion. It actually holds no real bearing in the one who is the source of all being. (laughs) Jesus is the essence of life. Why would we choose to live a lie? It turns us into phantoms. It turns us into that which God never intended. This is why Jesus, when he's asked by the thief on the cross, you know, hey, save yourself and save us, the first thief. And Jesus has nothing to say to him. Why? Because he doesn't love him? No, he loves him the same as the other thief. But he has nothing to say to that man because that man has chosen to be something that God knows nothing about. He has chosen to become that which actually has no bearing in real existence because God is the source of existence, and that man chose to be his own God, and that's not a real thing. Does that make sense? I know it sounds confusing. It's what Karl Barth called the Das Nichtig, the nothingness. It's an active nothingness that, that controls human hearts and human minds to get us to participate in non reality. And believe me, we all understand what non-reality is because we live in the age where you can now buy houses and buildings and cities um, in the virtual universe for real money, bizarre. Where are we moving? We are moving toward an even greater embracing of non-existence by choosing to define for ourselves what is our reality. And this is why reality is so stinking crazy right now. We need to be grounded in the one who is the ground of all being. And that means that our kingdom has to go so that his can come. This is why we have to allow that kingdom to actually, uh, um, to reveal in us the things that are unworthy of him. This is why, you guys, I, I felt the deep conviction. And I want to just state it here because it will hold me accountable. I have had a long history since starting Door of Hope with struggles with alcohol as a means of escape. And some of you have that same struggle because Portland loves its pleasure. We love our microbrews, We love our whiskey bars. We love our wine. And I'm not a teetotaler. I don't have any issue with alcohol. In fact, Jesus said when he broke the bread, he said, I'm not going to drink of the vine again until until you're with me in in the kingdom at the end of the age. And I've kind of had this like, I really like red wine, Lord. It's like, well, you got to drink it again. Maybe just not right now. And I remember the fighting of him because I, my, my family is saying, we don't think you're re- reacting well to alcohol. You, you, I'm not getting drunk, but it's, it's impacting you. It's, in, it's impacting how you, how you interact with us and it's hitting you harder than it seems like it should. And maybe there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's going on, but maybe you shouldn't. And I got mad. I'm like, I'm being held to an unfair standard because I'm a pastor. That's not fair. I threw like a total tantrum. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, you are held to a different standard. So quit being a baby and suck it up. And I put down the bottle and it has never been anything but good. It's so funny that hard decisions, I love good wine, I really do. I mean, the Willamette Valley is untouchable in my opinion. I'd rather drink a Willamette Pinot any day over any French or Italian wine, any, any day. But now I can just say that in past tense because I have chosen that as long as I am a pastor, of a body of Christians, I don't have the control to say one is enough. Because my personality is driven by more is more. And so the, this, this actually speaks very deeply to that. I had to come to the decision, is Jesus's kingdom gonna be my rule? Or am I gonna continue to be king in that area? So saying this is a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I confess that with you because I wanna challenge you to ask the question, there are good things. There is, Wine is good? It's a gift from God, but it also can be easily abused. But so can a million other things. <laughs> There's lots of things that we have the privilege of. We can turn our own children into our kingdoms. And actually that will go completely unnoticed. We can turn our service to the king into the kingdom itself. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom always insinuates the king's presence. And so when we say, "Your kingdom come, your will be done," we are saying, "Jesus." I surrender my life, every arena of it to you. You see, guys, I want revival. I will do whatever it stinking takes. I will give up whatever it takes to just taste of Jesus a little bit more. And it's not just because I'm called to pastor you. It's because I believe in the depths of my heart that I can't cause a revival, but I do believe that God's people have the ability to prevent it. And I'm tired of living with one foot so firmly planted in the earth and trying to keep the other foot in heaven that I'm constantly doing the splits. I don't wanna be divided. I wanna be a man that is given to the true service of Jesus and service to you. And I can't do it alone. And this is why I'm sharing with you, we need to do this together. God has called us to something radical. We saw it, Joe and I went away. I spoke to a group of pastors, 100 pastors in Klamath Falls and then spoke. To a, to a group of about a thousand. It was the largest gathering of multiple churches in Klamath Falls, as far as we know in their history. The churches there don't get along. They're, they're competitive. They don't work together. The pastors, the pastors are territorial. And it was such an incredible privilege. And I, and I thought to myself, Lord Jesus, I just want to be a conduit of your grace to these people and call them to the real question that matters. Do you know him? And if you know him, do you love one another? And is your kingdom a kingdom of your own creation, as if like Jesus is, is a Republican or a, or a pro-America or whatever or, is, or, or, something, or w- whatever you create, is the Jesus you worship and serve the Jesus of your own invention or is it the Jesus of the Bible who says, my kingdom come, your kingdom go? And I think that this is why we pray this. And in closing, notice he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven His kingdom is already here, but not in its fullness. There is always a now and not yet reality to the kingdom of God. And the more his will is accomplished in and through us, the more his kingdom will actually be seen. We as the church are called to be kingdom outposts. We are revealing to the world what is coming in full. And that doesn't mean we're presenting to the world some sort of Stepford wife, Um, mentality where we act like little robots who never do bad things, and I always say that Christians that act like Stepford Wives never know what I'm talking about when I say Stepford Wives because they were not allowed to watch Stepford Wives, which proves my point. Um, We are not presenting to the world an ideal that we can't keep. We are presenting to the world our own brokenness, our own humility that says, come and meet Jesus. And we're just beggars telling other beggar, beggars where they can get some bread. We're telling them that they are loved because we ourselves know what it's like to, to try to live life in our own, in our own strength, and our own ability, that we need one another. And yes, we're a mess, and we're a motley crew, and we're awkward, and, and we believe things that the world thinks is crazy, but has the world offered us something better than Jesus? And the answer is no. And so I just ask you guys today, as we pray, as we enter into a time of communion and worship, is His kingdom coming in your life? Is His will being done in your life? And is your life connected to His community? And is this God, who has revealed Himself to us in Jesus, the one that you talk with when you pray? Because He he loves you. And if you haven't prayed at all or you've been struggling with prayer and you've been, listen, every day is, is a return to the heart of the Father. We're all prodigal. It's just some of us stay away longer than others. And all of us will continue to drift and we need to continually, we pray in this way so that we can come back to the heart of the Father again and again. His mercies are new every day. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is hope. You are loved. You are known. You are loved. You are known. Know Him. Love Him. Because... He has already moved toward you in grace. This is why the cross stands at the center of all that we do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your kingdom, your power, your grace. Father, we come to you together as a church, and we pray that your kingdom would come, that it would come at door of hope that it would come into the city of Portland in a way that people can't ignore it. And we pray, as your people, that your will would be done in and through our lives, and your will is that we would love one another as you have loved us. Your will, it says, is our sanctification, and our sanctification is not us cleaning up our acts, but it's simply driven by our surrender to your goodness. And we pray that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we speak that you are in heaven, we're not saying you're far away. We're just saying that you hold all power and all authority. And so may you, the creator of all things, move into this rebellious place in which we call home in such a way that it cannot be ignored. And we pray for all of those in this city that are against you. We pray on their behalf. Have mercy, Lord. And we pray for all who call this church their home and aren't here today, and for all that are here, but are struggling to, to, to worship you and to know you. We pray, we pray on their behalf. We want to carry one another's burdens. And we want to say that we have faith in you, and we want to hold on to faith for those that don't have faith. So Jesus, help us to be the conduits of grace that you have called us to be. Not spiritual dominators, but a reflection of the sacrificial lamb whose life is poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. We remember you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to doorofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.